0: Hello and welcome to the Unheard Documentary Podcast. I'm Charlotte Pickles, editor of Unheard's Capitalism theme. So far in the series, we have looked at short-termism in the news industry with our editor Tim Montgomery, the crisis in capitalism with Juliet Samuel, and Mark Zuckerberg's white house ambitions with our technology editor Nigel Cameron. In this month's podcast, Douglas Murray explores the forgotten victims of communism 100 years on from the Russian Revolution. Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe to both this and the other Unheard
1: podcasts on your preferred app.
2: The 20th century produced two political horrors, fascism and communism. Of the two, the first rightly continues to be dwelt upon and remembered. Even in countries like Britain where fascism didn't get any grip, we understand the importance of recalling it and continue to build memorials to fascism's victims to keep the memory and the risks of any replay alive. With communism, it is a different story. Even among the countries which suffered its depredations, the memory and the memorializing is different. Outside of the countries which communism ravaged, the memory is slipping where it isn't absent. A recent poll in the UK found that half of 16- to 24-year-olds had never heard of Lenin. 70% said that they'd never heard of Mao, and 72% had never heard of Pol Pot. If fascism was this badly remembered, we would be worried. So why doesn't this lacuna worry us more? Is it to do with an unwillingness to recognise that communism was an equal evil to fascism? Is it a belief that there remains something good in the communist idea? Or is it to do with complicity, both inside the world that communism once pretended to rule, and also out? That's the sound of St Petersburg Palace Square on the centenary of the Russian Revolution this month. Even in the Russian press, there was uncertainty about how to commemorate that event. A tragedy, said some. A great event, said others. A global project. An earthquake. In June, an opinion poll asked Russians to name the top ten outstanding people of all time and all nations. Russia's current leader, Vladimir Putin, shared second position with the national poet Pushkin. But, once again, as in previous years, the Russian public declared the most outstanding person in world history to be Joseph Stalin, a man who killed around 20 million of their countrymen. We might all know what the number six million signifies, but the communist death toll seems to have become somehow specialist knowledge. Between 1917 and 1989, between 85 and 100 million people died as victims of communism. Mao Tse-tung alone accounted for tens of millions, two million between 1949 and 1951, another three million in the course of the 1950s, a staggering 45 million in the man-made famine known as the Great Leap Forward, yet more in the Cultural Revolution. When Pol Pot attempted to install his version of communism in Cambodia, a comparatively minor area of the communist laboratory, It led to the death of around a quarter of the Cambodian population. Millions of people. Millions of individual stories. But perhaps Stalin's most brutal and cynical utterance was correct, and that while one death is a tragedy, a million, even one hundred million, is an easily forgettable statistic. I spoke with the historian Anne Applebaum author of Gulag and Red Famine, among other acclaimed works, to try to understand this collective memory loss.
1: The absence of the history of the Soviet Union, the history of Central Europe, um, the history of the Cold War is very striking. These are subjects that just don't rank anymore, they aren't that important in school curricula, Um, people seem to be focused on other things, and I think you you can start with that as the beginning of the explanation, that it's dropped off the history curriculum.
2: What do you think is the cause of not wanting to focus on it?
1: I mean, there are several things, I and mean, one should start with the fact that history itself has been devalued. And more specifically, um, I do think it's the case that communism, after it ended, people felt, oh, well, that's all over then, or that's a closed chapter in history. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Um, it's an irrelevant past subject. And the idea that it might have lessons to teach us, or there might be an ongoing impact, not only in the countries that were uh, occupied by communist regimes, but elsewhere, I think has been lost.
2: But is this a closed chapter of history, or something that is still incubating?
1: It's important to go farther back if you want to understand why the memory of communism now is relatively weak. And I think it's important to look at how we understood communism at the time when there were real communist regimes, there's a way in which public understanding of communism never crossed certain barriers. I mean, as an example, I mean, it's a silly example, but one can look at the way in which pictures of Lenin or hammers and sickles appear on people's T-shirts and in, you know, in popular culture and they're used in advertising and so on in a way that you just can't imagine a swastika being used. And the crimes of communism, even as they were happening, never really penetrated into popular culture or the popular imagination.
2: I've travelled to the House of Terror in Budapest. It's a museum now, but it was witness to two shameful and tragic periods in Hungary's 20th century history. During the brutal rule of the Fascist Arrow Party in the 1940s, this building was known, somewhat eerily, as the House of Loyalty. Then, between 1945 and 1956, Hungary's notorious communist leadership took up residence here. Unusually, the museum commemorates the victims of terror equally. I've spent the last couple of hours walking around the museum. It shows in remorseless detail the cataclysm of suffering that the fascists brought to Hungary. But then, in equally remorseless detail through films, archive, and a tour through the still dank interrogation, holding and execution cells in the building's basement. It shows the cataclysm that the communists then brought to the country as well, in their case, in a rule which went on many times longer. I'm in Hungary to explore the legacy of communism that lasted for over 40 years. There is no one better than Janos Horvath to speak about this. In 1945, he was the youngest member of the Hungarian parliament and, prior to his retirement in 2014, was the oldest member of parliament. I began by asking his account of the Soviet occupation.
3: What happened in Hungary, that the occupying Soviet army removed the elected leaders, democratic Hungarian leaders, and placed in office... The communists. Since being a member of the parliament, I was targeted with another uh, score of people to remove from public life, so that the the governance would fall into the hands of the communists. So I, I have experienced communist life in Hungary. By the time it became communist life, I was in prison. They regard me as a, one of the showcase to demonstrate to themselves and to the world the regimentation of the society.
2: The Soviet forces that occupied Hungary after the Second World War refused to allow the formation of a government and, by 1949, had gradually taken over completely. Janosch was arrested by the Soviets on trumped-up charges escorted from the parliament building into which he'd been elected and was taken away to prison, where he was tortured. In Hungary, as everywhere they controlled, the Soviets used the same techniques. Arbitrary arrest, torture, show trials, deportation and work camps. Sometimes of people who were opposed to them, sometimes of people they thought could be opposed to them, sometimes just because they needed to feed the great death mill they'd set in operation. I asked Janos about this time in detention under the Soviets.
3: The process of interrogation in the police tried to convince and sometimes came another team of four or five people with with heavy sticks and beating and what I have to sign and a number of things, confess what they wanted, the conceptions. Uh, Then, of course, two days later came again to the beating and the misery. This is, again, the communist attitude.
2: What would you say to a young person today growing up, for whom this is history, but how would you communicate to them what those years were like, what communism meant?
3: Uh, One of the greatest, the greatest damage left over after the communist world, which is significant, very heavy, and even one of the heaviest... Elements is thinking about it uh, differently than it was. The greatest problem with communism will be what comes after it.
2: What will come after? Even in a country like Hungary, the people who saw communism's face are dying out. Memories fade. Things go on. Across the street from the Museum of Terror is the Danube Institute think tank, led by the journalist John O'Sullivan. I
4: asked him what the memory of communism is like today. The great bulk of the population um, who lived through it uh, is remembered with hatred and horror. Um, it was very, very um, harsh. There were people who were rounded up and sent to camps. The former foreign minister was executed, and everybody knew he was not guilty as charged. The normal Stalinist operations, which are absurd at one level, but terribly cruel and repressive and brutal at the other. Uh, looking back now, how differently are the crimes of the communists and the crimes of the fascists remembered in this country? They're both remembered... Um, but there is a passion about the crimes of the communists for an interesting reason. The crimes of the fascists are condemned everywhere, but, of course, there is not so complete a condemnation of the crimes of the communists outside Hungary as there undoubtedly is inside Hungary. And that, unfortunately, is more true than it should be in the rest of the world, and there is a kind of amnesia about these things.
2: Is it amnesia? Or is it ignorance?
4: People in the West who supported these crimes, who excused them, well, in a sense, facilitated them, um, they were acting under no pressure. There was no way in which the Soviet Union or the Hungarian government could reach out and punish them or them. And that's why I think a lot of people feel angry that, um, that those who, from positions of security, comfort and, and uh, political authority very often, help the, the communist countries. The fact that an awful lot of the time, you know, the Western left was denying uh, these things, or in the case of Eric Hobsbawm, of course, the famous case, where he said that um, these mass murders were justified because of the hope of a better world that they would lead to.
2: As the tables of any bookshop and any week's TV schedules show, public interest in fascism remains undimmed. Even relatively minor figures who fell for that horror have their life and motivations poured over. Yet again, the whole communist experiment and those who worked as apologists for it remains a subject of infinitely less fascination. Its proponents and propagandists have slipped the worst ignominy and the posthumous reckoning that might have been their due. Historian David Price Jones.
0: I'm afraid it's really an intellectual failure that all the people who were setting the intellectual tone in the, between the wars, people like Bernard Shaw, um, Julian Huxley, if you look at what they were saying, they're enthusiastic supporters of communism. Bernard Shaw's a terrible example of the thing. Um, he goes at the height of the famine and he pretends not to see it. So they were thought to be noble people doing noble things and I'm afraid it was a huge, big lie and deception. There seemed to be an entire intellectual class in Britain
2: devoted to
0: extolling
2: the beauties of the Soviet experiment and also covering for them. I mean, the, the class seemed to go that way, as it were.
0: Well, there aren't really the counter uh, class. Who is uh, saying what is the reality of the Soviet Union at that time? The answer is practically nobody. There's a Welsh journalist called Gareth Jones who worked for uh, um, Lloyd George. He speaks of the famine. He saw it himself. But who's heard of Gareth Jones? They still haven't heard of him, you know. He's a very important witness. But they they get, I think, deliberately suppressed because people, the institutions that should have been reporting on these things, were not. The Foreign Office is absolutely stuffed with Soviet apologists and e- even outright communists.
2: The Foreign Office wasn't the only such institution. There were also those inside and outside the British Intelligence Service, including the Cambridge spies, Philby, Burgess, Maclean and Blunt. All British citizens who advanced the communist cause and didn't mind how many of their fellow citizens died for that advancement. They believed that the ends justified the means and that the achievement of global communism was worth the unending process of human suffering that came along the way. George Orwell once asked, when speaking to a communist apologist who argued that you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, where's the
0: omelette? I think this country owes George Orwell an enormous debt that we didn't have the post-1945 communist experience that the French and the Italians uh, did have, because all had written 1984. And if that stopped people in their tracks. It was a tremendous, tremendous shock to, that uh, an English intellectual like Orwell um, could write a book like that. And look at the difficulty which he had getting Animal Farm in 1984 published. It was uh, 1984 was turned down 25 times or something of the sort, and one was by T.S. Eliot, who thought it was not an um, opportune thing to do right now. So if people like Eliot, who is fundamentally a conservative and a Christian, if he's taking the wrong side, where are we?
2: But this went on after the war, didn't it? I mean, There remained this strain, whereas nobody after 1945 in British public life would have said, you know, we've, we just haven't tried fascism properly yet. Uh, there's another version of it that we could go round. Nobody would say that. But yet there were people, after the horrors became very well known, who were still in the positions in British public life and intellectual life who who did think that we
0: could get there with the communist experiment. How long did that go on for? Well, has it fully died? I don't think it has completely died. There are still people um, who think that Stalin helped us win the war, and therefore he was justified in doing whatever it was he did. And if you have to kill 10 million people, well, that's what you do, isn't it? And um, you're right that nobody ever suggested a rerun of fascism, but or Nazism, but uh, communism is a different story because it's been presented as being somehow on the right side, progressive. That's how it's got presented to the public. And, of course, it's complete and utter rubbish.
2: Rubbish it may have been, but it was an idea with a strange ability to attract idealists as well as narcissists. While those like Blunt and Philby worked inside the system for this idea, many others, often ordinary family men and women, believed that they could do their part in bringing about the perfect communist state on earth. The parents of the journalist David Aronovich were two such people.
5: My father was a full-time worker for the Communist Party from the mid-40s till the late 60s, Um, so... Uh, for the first 10-15 years of my life. My mother had been a member of the Communist Party since the end of the war. And the milieu in which I was brought up was a Communist Party milieu. As communist as, let's say, a staunch Catholic is brought up in a Catholic milieu, You know, together with the rituals and observances and the community aspects of, of what that meant. What would the opinion
2: of people like your parents have been towards Stalin in that era?
5: My father cried when he heard about the death of Stalin. So my dad then would have been about 33, 34, and I never once saw him cry, ever. Never once. I not know anybody who did. So I think we can take it that the death of Stalin was a kind of, you know, a big moment for him. And everything in the party literature of the time speaks to the total adulation that Communist Party members felt for Stalin, there's uh, in my book I quote something which was written by Palm Dutt, who was the editor of a Communist Party theoretical journal called Labour Monthly, where he'd said that Marxism was scientific, but science required mastery, and mastery implied a master. and the great master of scientific socialism was, you guessed it. Stalin! Um, in other words, it was a kind of, you know, hop-skip-jump from the idea of this kind of mass movement of Marxism to the cult of the personality. So they were firm. They would have been, during the 40s
2: and early 50s, firm Stalinists. What would their reaction have been to the news that had come out for a long time by then about what was happening in Gulag? And-
5: it's an odd mixture, really, of denial um, It's not happening. Or the people who are being caught up in it are guilty and deserve it and these their confessions in these show trials are are true. A form of making excuses, well, if you were in that situation, you might make mistakes, but on the whole your intention was good and you're not as bad as X, Y, and Z. Uh, um, But... If you were actually a party full-timer like my father was, then you were part of a collective that was involved in the business, actually, of selling this stuff. What flows from that, however, and the problem that kind of flows from that, is Stalin died, and almost as soon as Stalin died, the people who took over from Stalin said, no, this was a load of nonsense, it wasn't true.
2: In the 1950s, following the death of Stalin, there was a way out for even the most disappointed communists a party into which they could legitimately pour the energies left over from their earlier enthusiasms. But that party was not entirely unconnected with what had gone before. Giles Udi is the author of a recent book, Labour and the Gulag, which provides a revelatory and at times chilling description of the relationship between the Labour Party and what started in Russia 100 years ago.
6: Labour had had a very interesting set of fluctuating reactions to the Russian Revolution. The government welcomed the Russian Revolution, welcomed revolutions that then spread all over Europe, overthrowing previous monarchies and previous governments. They saw the Bolsheviks, as they were originally called, and then the communists as their political cousins, admittedly somewhat uncouth, but nonetheless their political cousins, and were solidly behind what was going on in Russia. They had talked for years about uh, the utopian socialist state, but it didn't really mean theory. In 1917, what happened, they found that such an exciting prospect that they withheld any real critical judgment.
2: It's a familiar story. People willing to ignore the evidence, even, they think, just for a while, in order to further a longer-term political goal. But for those who thought that Bolshevism in Russia provided a blueprint for what could happen at home, the evidence that seeped out at first soon turned into a torrent of facts.
6: Giles Udi, Evidence had been coming out on a constant basis, and had been ignored, had been excused. At one point, George Lansbury, the leader of the Labour Party, um, actually said it is not the business of any socialist to criticise what is going on in Soviet Russia. We are there to support them. It is not our business to be criticising them. And that was his response to people saying there is repression going on there, there is mass murder going on in there. What was the reason for the Labour Party not criticising their Russian counterparts? They could see that there were certainly things which were not working in Russia, but they were so keen for the socialist utopia to be built. Where? In Russia, as an example for the world. To see that the theory worked, they felt their primary role as fellow socialists, as brother socialists, was to support rather than to criticise. And that remained a dominant and constant theme. With an aim to do what? Obviously, to prove that it could be done, because they had their own ambitions for the UK.
2: While researching his book, Giles travelled to Russia to visit archives and the sites of Soviet horror.
6: The most extraordinary building I found was this concrete block in the middle of a rubbish dump, and it was the old punishment block in a punishment camp. So it was the worst of the worst. And the refinement of torture and brutality. Now, the temperature there goes down to minus 50. Those cells had no roof. And the doors were studded on the inside so that whoever was locked in those cells could not bang on the doors to summon the guards to get left out. And I know from other stories that what happened to prisoners is that when they were... In some camps where they were sent to punishment cells, they were sent there to be killed and to die slowly as a deterrent for other people.
2: As the decades have passed, it's not just memories that have died. The buildings, the camps, the infrastructure of terror have all fallen away, weathered by the exigencies of time and the appalling conditions that, as the authorities at that time knew, no building or human being could survive for long. Perhaps it is this reason, among others, that memories have become so thin. Nobody will visit these camps. There will be no pilgrimage trail. Even the places where all this happened will soon bear no trace of them.
6: The experience of seeing all this and knowing the inside story is what made me angry to see what in their political theory meanderings British socialists were dismissing and making light of, even though these stories were coming out. Even though the news was coming out of what was going on in this country, there were people who were prepared to discount that. And it wasn't just a theoretical issue. For me, seeing what happened on the other side with Russian friends, sitting around tables where you would find a third to half the people had a grandparent or a great uncle who had been repressed or had disappeared or whatever else. This was their current experience.
2: In October, the British government announced the winning design for a new National Holocaust Memorial to be placed beside the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. The memorial is intended to keep the crimes of the Nazis against the Jewish people forefront in the minds of generations to come. Not just to remember what happened, but, crucially, to help inoculate future generations to even the slightest resurgence of the nightmarish dream that Mussolini, Hitler and others pursued a century ago. Though Britain did not suffer under fascism, the need to kindle the lessons of that period are enough to make the need for such a memorial obvious. But why is a national museum commemorating the crimes of communism not able to sit alongside such an effort? I went to meet a man who is trying to do just that. James Bartholomew is an author and journalist and he wants to open a museum of communist terror in London. I started by asking him what had inspired him to work on such a project.
7: The idea for having a museum of communist terror came to me when I visited the House of Terror in Budapest, which is a museum commemorating what was done by the Nazis and then the Soviets and the communists within Hungary and the terror that they inflicted on the populace, both the Nazis and the Soviets. And um, when I came out, I thought, my God, this is a powerful, emotional depiction of what happened under communism, and it told me things I didn't know. And I decided that at the same time, uh, in Britain, my children and their friends knew little or nothing about what happened under communism at all.
2: Perhaps it is inevitable that young people know more about their own age than the periods before theirs. But a poll of Young British Opinion last year found that when 16- to 24-year-olds in Britain were asked who they associated with crimes against humanity, twice as many young people associated George W Bush and Tony Blair with such crimes than either Mao Tung or Pol Pot.
7: They didn't know about Stalin, they didn't know about Lenin, they didn't know about the Khmer Rouge, they didn't know about Mao Zedong. they didn't know about any of the millions and millions of deaths that took place, whereas lots of people, the whole population virtually, knows about the Holocaust, uh, which obviously was a terrible thing, and it's quite right that it should be commemorated. But there is no equivalent knowledge of communist terror, which actually resulted in the deaths of many more people.
2: Why else do you think that might be that this whole area is is so... Sort It requires your work, it requires individuals to do the scurrying for the information themselves. Why do you think that is with this particular ideology?
7: People of my generation who lived through the Cold War, who, in my case, who visited communist countries when they were still communist, we sort of assumed that knowledge would continue. We didn't take on the idea that actually this needed to be perpetuated. It was important to perpetuate. It was inconceivable to us that people wouldn't continue to be horrified by communism because we had been horrified by most of our lives. And the idea that people would just forget was inconceivable to us. And and now, belatedly, I and others of of my generation are looking with horror at how young people don't know about it and are thus tempted by the apparent idealism of communist and neo-communist ideas. And so it's a sort of desperate urgency to communicate that being idealistic doesn't mean the result is going to be heroic and wonderful. It could mean the exact opposite.
2: The idealistic doesn't lead to the ideal. Across Europe and North America... Public opinion on one of the two catastrophes of the 20th century is well and truly in. Whatever our other challenges as societies, one thing we can say with certainty is that we are unlikely to hear anyone outside of a tiny community of committed racists tell us that, although it's true that the Nazis went too far, the goals that they sought to achieve were beautiful. No prominent historian has suggested that if the price of reaching Nazism's goals had been another six million murdered Jews, then the price might have been worth it. When the centenary of Hitler's rise to power comes around, nobody with a good reputation will welcome it as a beautiful moment for humanity that just happened to go awry. Yet throughout my travels for this programme, the same thought keeps occurring. The fascist nightmare is down, if not out. Our societal antibodies towards its recrudescence remain admirably strong. Yet the same cannot be said of the other nightmare dream of the 20th century. From Russia to Westminster, when a centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution came around, there were respected people from mainstream journalism and politics who were willing to extol a part, at least, of the socialist dream. One problem with this phenomenon is that it keeps the promise and the basilis of communism alive. It suggests that it might be worth going around it again at some point. Perhaps this time, they think, it will work. Since the 2008 financial crisis, we have heard murmurs that have bubbled up to the surface again. Does Marx provide the answer to the financial crisis? Commentators across the world have asked. Nobody suggested that a Mussoliniite employment programme might be the answer to the credit crunch. Deep challenges, though, our societies undoubtedly face, to think that the answer to them lies anywhere in the dreams that communism propelled seems like responding to a headache by ingesting arsenic. Our societal antibodies when it comes to communism still seem worryingly weak, Anti-fascism is a natural and respected attitude. In the West, at least, anti-communism remains a quirk. In those countries which it ravaged, the memory remains clearer, but even that can change. If our societies are going to be inoculated to communism, then the best way will be in the manner in which we've inoculated ourselves to fascism, by remembering... It will clearly require some effort in much of the West to remember the 100 million deaths brought about by communism. But it is not hopeless. That famous, cynical quote of Stalin's can only be proved wrong if we have the courage to admit that 100 million deaths were not an accident or some necessary evil, and that they are not now, nor ever were then, just a statistic. On the contrary, 100 million deaths are the tragedy of one death multiplied 100 million times. To consider that legacy demands not only learning and memory, but awe and silence.